Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Real Clear Science is asking, why are watches usually set to 10-10 in advertisements? Hmm. Are they? That is a good question. Okay. Well, often they are. And this has actually been the norm since the 1950s. Showing the hands at 10-10 leaves a nice space so you can see the brand name. So the Rolex or the Cartier, Mm. which is usually front and center. But to be fair, there are other settings that accomplish this aim in different time settings, right? Like Mm 9-15, you know, and it would be completely flat open. So why the little tilt here? Well, a different explanation might prompt a little bit of surprise or perhaps skepticism This article purports that 1010 sells more watches because it subtly resembles a smile, leaving onlookers in a better mood. Ooh, Mm. psychology. (laughs) But let's get some science in here. This is realclearscience.com after all. So Mm. what they did is they got 46 participants to look at 60 pictures of various watches with their time set at either 1010, 1130, or 820. Hmm. The subjects rated watches set at 1010 as slightly more pleasurable compared to watches set to the other times. And they also said they would be slightly more likely to buy them. So they did a second experiment in which researchers got 20 more subjects to each view 12 different images in random order of watches again set at 1010, 1130, or 820. And overwhelmingly, subjects chose 1010 saying this is a smiley face, but 820 is a sad face. Mm. And we all know too well how marketers will exploit any angle they can <laughs> to sell products. Yeah, I mean, I'd be, I'd be willing to bet that the watch manufacturers have already done this research a long time ago and said, oh, yeah, for whatever reason, 1010 makes people more likely. Let's go with that. I'm a little more skeptical of the part of the study that was just like, which one of these looks most like a smiley face? Well, yeah. I mean, if you prompt them like that, clearly the one that's pointing (laughs) upward. Like if you give them that 1010 face and say, what does this most resemble? And show them 500 pictures of different things, you might get a lot of different answers. But Mm, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it resembles a smiley face or not. If it makes people buy a watch, it makes people buy a watch. Don Draper could not have put it better himself. (laughs) (laughs) Except I need a cigarette and like a lot more ennui and anger at the world. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from smithsonianmag.com. It's titled, Have Scientists Designed the Perfect Chocolate? (gasps) Oh, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. So think about biting into a piece of chocolate. What makes it enjoyable? Is it the sweetness, the way it melts in your mouth, the crunch, the sound it makes, or all of the above? The crunch. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So, spoilers. uh, A team (laughs) at the University of Amsterdam is attempting to use physics and geometry to answer some of these questions and to hopefully create an even more enjoyable treat. Their result, a spiral-shaped 3D-printed candy, doesn't look like anything currently on the supermarket shelf, but it may just be the future of food. Wait, like a bully stick? I don't know what a bully stick is. Oh, it's but... one of those dog treats that's like spiraled up. It's like a like a mm-hmm. rolled carpet. 
Uh, yes, is. That, that is kind of pretty much what it looks like. Yeah. Technically, okay. it is the, the penis of an animal that has been dried, which is... Oh, okay. Well, that's not what this is, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, Corrington Coulet, a physicist at the University of Amsterdam who led the research, says there wasn't anyone on the team who didn't like chocolate, unfortunately. <laughs> Coulet no. normally works with non-food metamaterials, materials with structures and properties not found in nature. First, the researchers tempered dark chocolate containing 72% cacao, heating and cooling it carefully to give it a stable structure. Then they printed the chocolate into a series of shapes using a 3D printer. Some of the spirals were simple S-shapes, while others were more intricate, almost like labyrinths. The team then submitted the chocolates to a series of mechanical tests to see how they would break when bitten. When the chocolates were pressed from above, they shattered into many pieces, especially the more elaborately spiraled ones. When bitten from the side, they usually cracked only once. So, why does this matter? Well, the next step of research, published last month in the journal Soft Matter, involved giving the chocolates to a very lucky panel of human testers. <laughs> the investigators asked which shapes the tester preferred and why. Coulet says the more intricate the shape, the more crack it had, and the more they seemed to enjoy it. Previous research has shown that people enjoy the sensation of food crunching or breaking in their mouths. Mm. They especially enjoy hearing the shattering sounds. <gasps> Taste researcher Alan Hirsch describes it as the music of mastication. Or <laughs> Some scientists think this may be because crunchiness is a signal of freshness and that hmm. texture helped our ancestors seek out the most nourishing foods. Chocolate, of course, is not famous for being healthy, but the research is part of the broader field of edible metamaterials, which has potential for creating foods that are more nutritious, easier to eat, or better for the environment. Fabio Vallopi, a researcher at the University of Helsinki who studies edible metamaterials, says these are exciting times. The field is very young, but it's full of promise. Vallopi mentions recent research on morphing pasta or geometrically engineered pasta that goes from flat to 3D during cooking. He says, you can imagine that having such a type of pasta can help reduce our ecological footprint by reducing emission and transportation costs. Like Ikea flat pack. (laughs) (laughs) So using geometry to tailor a food's mouthfeel could allow researchers to use healthy foods with low carbon footprints like lentils or tofu to create interesting palatable meat substitutes. The same techniques could create special foods for people who have trouble with biting or chewing because of illness or dental issues. If you could control how much force is needed to shatter a piece of food, you could make tasty solid foods that are extremely easy to bite. More futuristically, Coulet imagines a world where geometry is a tool for individualized food preparation. Imagine astronauts on the ISS printing out foods tailored to their needs and preferences, or soldiers dining on MREs that use edible metamaterials to deliver maximum calories in a minimum of space. Hmm. Even more sci-fi is the idea of edible holograms. Foods whose surfaces have been etched in such a way to give them shiny holographic designs. This changes the color of the food, so imagine like candy with no artificial colorants, and could potentially lead to edible nutritional labeling. So this can reduce the need for printing labels, and the food product becomes the label itself. Hmm. The research into the geometry of shattering also has non-food applications. Figuring out how to control where a material breaks could mean designing better crash helmets or other protective gear. Controlled shattering could even mean safer planes or cars. Imagine a vehicle designed to have an exterior that shattered in a way that protected the interior. That sounds super anime, like where (laughs) you have a crash and all those little shards turn into like Sakura blossoms or something. Oh yeah, yeah. 
I'm not sure how the science would work on that, but I can right. imagine hey, we're something dreaming like big that. Right now, yes, you know. we are. Yeah. <laughs> Although I take a little umbrage with everybody likes a cracky chocolate. Mm. Yeah, the stuff that I like all has like the Rice Krispies in it or the stuff inside it. Like I want other mm. things mixed into my chocolate. Oh, see, I'm the opposite. I'm a solid chocolate, but I want it to be smooth and I want it to melt. And if it's snappy, I'm mad mm. because then my whole melt process is interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it could just go from a snappy to a melty sort of deal. You know, you could get the it could best be both. Of both worlds. Yeah. yeah. Yes, a melty spiral. I don't know. I feel like they, <laughs> they self-selected their sample size there. Right. They did admit no one in there didn't like chocolate. They needed a bigger sample size. <laughs> yeah. I think that the future is bright. <laughs> right, and right, right. We can put anything we want into those little spirals. I mean, I did not realize I was such a shattered chocolate defender, but uh, <laughs> this brought it out of me. So. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from the New York Times, and it's called The Rich Are Not Who We Think They Are, and Happiness Is Not What We Think It Is Either. All right, New York Times. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I, I saw this article title. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I should say at the start that this whole article is an adapted segment of a book called Don't mm. Trust Your Gut, Using Data to Get What You Really Want in Life, which, based on the Gut Instincts article we had a few weeks back, seems like a premise we maybe should be on the fence about. But this is really more about dispelling popular misconceptions with data rather than telling you how to make decisions in your own life. So, you know, oh, I good. A, a well, actually book and an excerpt from it. Let's go. <laughs> so the first misconception covered here is what do you picture when you think of a rich person? Often, of course, we tend to think of the super rich like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. But in actuality, there are more than 140,000 Americans in the top 0.1% of earners, or those who make more than $1.58 million per year. And a 2019 study looked at anonymized but otherwise complete tax data to determine exactly what their lives looked like. And it turns out the typical rich American is most commonly the owner of an auto dealership or a beverage distributor. Now, what? there's a... Yeah. <laughs> That was the reaction he was hoping for. So <laughs> there's a couple of key reasons for those two industries in particular. Both are subject to legal regulations that reduce competition. In the case of auto dealerships, you are guaranteed a certain territory for your manufacturer. Beverage distribution, meanwhile, is an industry that came out of the post-prohibition era after it became illegal for liquor manufacturers to personally distribute their products to stores. They're basically a legally required middleman. <laughs> but Angie, we don't want the liquor manufacturers to go to the store. There might be collusion involved. I mean, there might be Kahlua involved. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh no, that was worth it. But aside from the special protections that these two industries enjoy. The author's point here is that the majority of the wealthy class are people who own what he calls unsexy businesses, including things like gas stations, auto shops, and equipment contractors. And he points out that this data lines up almost exactly with a different set of data, which is how quickly a particular type of business tends to go out of business. According Ooh. to a study by Tian Luo and Philip B. Stark, the number one most likely to fail business is a record store. Oh, they, yeah. Wow. They they last an average of just 2.5 years. Other businesses that fold quickly include toy stores, clothing stores and cosmetic stores, 
all of which fail in an average of less than four years. By comparison, the average dentist office lasts 19.5 years, which kind of makes it sound like you're out of luck if you don't happen to have any training in dentistry or cars. Mm -hmm. But he says actually there is a common business among wealthy Americans that crosses all industries, and that is market research. So if you have a lot of knowledge about cosmetics, for example, you shouldn't open a cosmetic store. You should start a cosmetics market research business and sell that industry trend data to existing cosmetic companies, and you'll have a much better chance of becoming a multimillionaire that way, assuming that is your goal. Hmm. But then we get to the second misconception covered in the article, which is, will being super rich actually make you happy? And (laughs) believe it or not, he says this one is a little more murky than people think. One widely reported study several years ago found that there was no increase in happiness beyond an income of $75,000 per year. Did you guys ever see that one when it came out? It was kind of a big thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Despite the publicity at the time, it was actually a pretty small scale study and apparently some better ones have come out since. Matthew Killingsworth of the University of Pennsylvania looked at data from more than 30,000 adults, which is the biggest study so far on money and happiness. And he found that while happiness does keep increasing with increased income, there's a diminishing return. Basically, Mm -hmm. you have to keep doubling your income to get the same happiness boost. Hmm. But of course, the most interesting happiness studies tell us what does make us happy. For that, we go to the Mappiness Project, founded by the British economists Susanna Morato and George McCarran. In this program, the researchers randomly pinged tens of thousands of people on their smartphones at different times and places and asked them three simple questions. Who are they with? What are they doing? And how happy are they? And from this, they built a sample of more than 3 million data points and found that the three activities that make people happiest are, in order, sex, exercise, and gardening. Hey! Yeah. They found a big happiness boost from being around friends and family, but effectively none from being around strangers versus being alone. Hmm. Weather plays only a small role in happiness except on the most extraordinarily beautiful days, but people are consistently happier when they're out in nature, particularly near a body of water. Mm. And, not at all surprisingly, the Mappiness Project found that out of 27 leisure activities, social media ranks dead last in how much happiness it brings us. (laughs) And the author does acknowledge that all of this is super common sense stuff, right? Nothing shocking here. But Mm. he says, quote, there is profundity in the obviousness. Because for all that we know it, we are not doing it. And interestingly, a lot of this seems to come down to peer pressure. Living in cities makes us less happy. But it is by definition what most people are doing. And there is some evidence that that's part of why we do it. But when people are individually pressured to move out of cities, they are more likely to do it than they would on their own. And they are more likely to report an increase in happiness. And when someone is unhappy with their job, for example, studies show they are in that moment susceptible to advice on whether they should leave or not. And if they do quit, they are more likely to report an increase in happiness. So basically what it boils down to is we can't make ourselves do the right thing for our own happiness, but we can make each other do the right thing. So we all need to step up and start telling each other what to do. I like the phrasing of that. Like, you can become susceptible to good advice if you're unlucky. (laughs) Right? (laughs) If you're miserable, you might listen to people. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, and that can also go the other way, see QAnon. Well, yeah, and that was part of the deal that they were talking about. Like, you only moved into a city in the first place 
because you saw everyone else doing it. Like we sort of naturally do what everyone's doing, even if you can look at everyone in the city and go, they're all unhappy. But I should probably get on that bandwagon. Like it, humans are messed up, man. <laughs> <laughs> and the opposite applies as well. If everybody started moving out to the lake and yep. like gardening and having sex with each other all the time, everyone would be there and then we would be miserable. Like we would just build a city on the lake. So like there's no escaping it. We all need our little plot of land and firm fences and no smartphones. Yes, no smartphones. First person to check their notifications gets kicked out of the orgy. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. I'm going to stick back to this future food kick because Bon Appetit has a killer article called what dinner will look like in the next 100 years. So we're going to just kind of take a quick look. We all know climate change, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, (laughs) we've got people called food futurologists. Um, Dr. Morgane Gay has a blonde faux hawk and purple tinted glasses. And if that doesn't make you hopeful, I don't know what will. But listen, (laughs) the future, she says, is all about air protein, something Wei Kana was talking about earlier, Hmm. a product that uses high-tech fermentation, to turn carbon dioxide into chicken or whatever you want, really. (laughs) You know, tens of millions of dollars are currently being invested into alternative proteins and air might just be one of the keys to feeding the world's 9.8 billion people by 2050. That's that's sooner than I was thinking. Uh Uh-huh. And that's nearly 2 billion more people than we fail to feed today. And an overwhelmingly amount of that ground, the UN predicts, will be in sub-Saharan Africa, where desert conditions obviously make farming a challenge. You know, if the planet warms 2.7 degrees by 2040, as experts predict, we are going to get flooding, extreme weather, all that kind of stuff is on the table. What might not be on the table? California avocados. By 2050, they might have to be grown indoors and cost $20 a pop. Wow. But, you know, to take a look at what the future of food might look like, we're going to project out, let's start with 10 years, in 2032. We can expect, within the next decade, grocery stores to stock cell-cultured proteins, where stem cells are collected, put into bioreactors, and fed nutrients like glucose so they can grow into animal-free chicken, beef, pork, and even duck. And then to drink, we'll have a squeaky clean glass of locally hyper-filtered, recycled, delicious sewage water. In the next Mm. decade, most of the world will experience shortages of fresh water. But okay, let's go a little further out. 2042. Just as Wei had mentioned, personalization nutrition is the phrase most heard from food industry experts, like the R&D at PepsiCo, which recently launched a sweat patch to tell you when you need more Gatorade. Spoiler yeah. alert, it's often. <laughs> so what's on menu in 2042? Let's talk about sustainably farmed zero-waste salmon. The demand for proteins is predicted to increase 40% by 2050. Next to that, we'll have some protein-enhanced lentils in a coconut milk broth seasoned with local greenhouse peppers because extreme weather in Latin America has made the imported ones too expensive. Hmm. Okay, but let's go even further. This is the last one. We're going to go 100 years. We're going big sky, folks. Four science fiction writers. <laughs> Sarah Blake, the author of Clean Air, her book takes place in a near-distant future where plants overproduce pollen, killing a ton of humans while the rest live in domes and eat oversized produce farmed by robots. 
Mm-mm, that dealership owner is going to be eaten well in the future. Okay. <laughs> in Goliath, novelist Tochi Onyebuchi imagines a future in which the rich have taken off for space colonies, leaving the rest on radiation-ruined Earth. And so we will have some 3D-printed tortilla chips with cell-cloned cheese sauce and jalapenos, all sourced from aerial farms in the upper atmosphere of Venus. So, you know, we overcome, adapt, improvise, still got to eat. Unless some other adaptation makes it so we become totally photosynthetic, which I would very much be open to. Yeah, I mean, a hundred years in the future, we're all going to be dead anyway, so we can say whatever we want. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hungry. Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from biospace.com. It's titled, Researchers Pinpoint Important Biomarker for SIDS. Oh, yeah. So if you're not familiar, sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS accounts for about 37% of sudden unexpected deaths a year in the U.S. And the cause of SIDS has remained largely unknown. According to Mayo Clinic, many in the medical community suspected this phenomenon could be caused by a defect in the part of the brain that controls arousal from sleep and breathing. Mm. The theory was that if the infant stopped breathing during sleep, the defect would keep them from startling or waking up. The Sydney researchers were able to confirm this theory by analyzing dried blood samples taken from newborns who had died of SIDS and other unknown causes. They found the activity of the enzyme butyrylcholinesterase, or BCHE, was significantly lower in babies who died of SIDS compared to living infants and other non-SIDS infant deaths. BCHE plays a major role in the brain's arousal pathway, explaining why SIDS typically occurs during sleep. Previously, parents were told SIDS could be prevented if they only took proper precautions. Laying babies on their backs, not letting them overheat, and keeping all toys and blankets out of the crib are a few of the most important preventative steps. Importantly, they still are, as there is still no test for this biomarker. But many Mm. children whose parents took every precaution still died from SIDS. These parents were left with immense guilt, wondering if they could have prevented their baby's death. Dr. Carmel Harrington, the lead researcher for the study, was one of these parents. Her son unexpectedly and suddenly died as an infant 29 years ago. In an interview with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Harrington explained what she was told about the cause of her child's death. Nobody could tell me, they just said it's a tragedy, but it was a tragedy that didn't sit well with my scientific brain. Since then, she's worked to find the cause of SIDS both for herself and for the medical community as a whole. She says, These families can now live with the knowledge that this was not their fault. In the study, the researchers wrote, this finding represents the possibility for the identification of infants at risk for SIDS and opens new avenues for future research into specific interventions. In the next few years, those in the medical community who have studied SIDS will likely work on a screening test to identify babies who are at risk for SIDS and hopefully prevent it altogether. Yeah, they already screen newborn infants for like a hundred different things. Mm -hmm. Like that's why they had the blood samples. They do a little heel card. They prick their heel and they get like nine drops of blood and they go screen them for a bajillion things. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it comes back negative and you're fine. But they'll just add this one thing to the list of things they screen for. Mm -hmm. The problem is, of course, you can test them for the risk factor, but then you have to say, okay, what do we do with a baby that Mm -hmm. we know has this low enzyme activity? But they already have things like baby apnea monitors Mm. where they put like they can check if your baby is breathing and an alarm goes off Mm -hmm. if they aren't breathing every 10 seconds or whatever. So there are things they can do even if they can't medically treat it. They can monitor that baby more closely for Mm -hmm. the first two, three years. Oh, that's great. Uh, Yeah, this is huge. This is really, really huge. 
Yeah, well, some good news to, to cap off the previous article with. So, you know, <laughs> we might right. be going into a future world where a lot of our food is different, but hey, we'll have more people to eat it. That's your silver lining, huh? More mouths to feed. Okay. Right. Right. Well, you know what? I couldn't figure out the transition, so. <laughs> I appreciate your impulse towards optimism. Thank you, Way. <laughs> next link. Let's just next link. Next, next link. All right, well, I'm going to end that optimism real quick. All right. Uh, <laughs> This next one's got a somewhat unusual source. It's from the Wall Street Journal's YouTube channel, and it's called How Do Airports Keep Birds from Striking Planes? So it's largely an interview slash profile of Laura Frank Kerr, the chief wildlife biologist for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, who has been managing wildlife at airports for over 20 years. Wow. And while technically this does include any kind of wildlife that might stumble onto a runway, for the most part, it does mean birds. So in 2020, there were an average of 47, quote, wildlife strikes reported daily across the U.S., which feels very unfair to me, by the way, because it really seems more like the plane is striking the animal. But at any rate, mm-hmm. of the roughly 17,000 wildlife strikes per year, 94% are birds, 3.2% are bats, 2.3% are terrestrial mammals, and 0.5% are reptiles, which Aww. starts to hint at the regimentation of FAA regulations, which we'll get into a little bit in a minute. But basically, they run over a lizard and they got to document it. Like, they're very <laughs> precise about this data. Yeah, I mean, 2.3% terrestrial animals. I mean, I'm sure that's just like on the runway, but I was imagining somehow like a squirrel got up there and just... Right, right. He's on the wing. Yeah. <laughs> then the guy has to come out and see where the squirrel fell. And he's like, yep, that was a squirrel. Bear right there it, it is. We'll draw the little chalk outline. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, the vast majority of these do happen during takeoff and landing because even birds have a hard time getting up to 30,000 feet in the air, let alone lizards and squirrels. But the FAA estimates that airlines spend roughly $124 million and 75,000 hours of downtime per year in repairing damage from wildlife strikes. Wow. And the danger isn't just monetary. Depending on where it occurs, a wildlife strike can sometimes cause severe damage or even aircraft failure. If a bird dents the nose of the plane, for example, it will be very expensive to fix because that's where a lot of the radar equipment lives. But the plane will probably still be able to land just fine. If a bird damages the landing gear or suffers what's known as, apologies in advance, an engine ingestion, that could put everyone's lives in danger. Mm. So given that she works for the Port Authority, Frank Kerr spends a lot of her time at JFK International in New York City which is especially prone to bird accidents because the airport borders on a body of water known as Jamaica Bay, which draws in a lot of waterfowl. And the good news is that her job is almost entirely preventative because at the end of the day, we do want to protect these animals and prevent accidents from happening, right? Frank Kerr says the most dangerous time of the year for bird strikes is in the late summer and fall. This is partly due to seasonal bird migration, but there is more to it because birds also migrate in the spring. But after that is when they lay their eggs and have their babies. So the fall migration contains a lot of adolescent birds who are migrating for the first time and haven't learned yet which areas to avoid. So she and her team have to make the airport naturally unappealing, which means eliminating food, cover, and water. The problem is that they also have to account for the desires of multiple species. So some birds like short grass where they can see any potential predators around them, so they have to keep the grass tall. But if the grass is too tall, 
You start to attract lots of small mammals, which is a problem in itself, but that also starts to attract larger birds that eat the small mammals. So she says the ideal height for grass around an airport is between 6 and 12 inches. Another strategy is to place anti-perching devices everywhere you can. And these vary in design based on the surface they're intended to cover, but they're pretty much what you expect. There's a lot of cones and pointy things. Wildlife staff also spray regularly for insects, which removes a common food source for the birds. And they check the entire area daily for burrows under the fences and new nests on top of any airport structures. And if they do find a nest, they will try to scare the birds away with small pyrotechnics, which are basically flare guns that also make a little screaming noise like some fireworks do. Wow. (laughs) Or in the most extreme cases, they will trap and relocate the birds. Some really persistent species that have sort of a homing tendency, like the American kestrel, they will release a minimum of 30 miles away from the airport with a numbered band around their legs so they can tell if that particular bird has come back and needs to be moved even farther away. Now, fair warning, we're all about to learn a new vocabulary word from this article, and it is a doozy. So (laughs) because, as I said, the airport environment is so federally regulated, when a wildlife strike does occur, Frank Kerr and her staff have to do the best they can to collect the forensic evidence, if you will, and document everything they can about the incident. And the official term for whatever remains of the poor creature who recently met its doom is the snarge. Staff staff will collect the snarge in an airtight bag for documentation. And if they can't readily identify the species, they will even send the snarge off to the Smithsonian for proper identification. (laughs) And just in case you've forgotten, this is a video, and they do have footage of several bags of snarge in a big cooler, (laughs) which this whole thing, like, I was very on the fence about talking about this article, but, you know, people like serial killer podcasts, so maybe they want to hear about this. I don't know. If you got to go really grim and dark, at least save it with a word like snarge. Exactly. That balances out so well. <laughs> Scraping the snarge off the tarmac. Exactly. <laughs> there was a horrible <sighs> bit where she was going through the little bags and she's like, you know, there's not much left of this one, but you can clearly tell it's a snowy owl. And I was like, no. <laughs> snarge. Next link. Next link. Okay. I will end with a little bit of optimism here. (laughs) (laughs) Space and Science reports that a fragment of the asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs may have been found. Wow. A tiny fragment encased in amber is one of several astounding finds at a unique fossil site in the Hell Creek Formation in North Dakota. The fossils unearthed there include uh, fish that sucked in debris that was blasted out during the strike. Oh, God. A turtle impaled with a stick. Uh, (gasps) Snarge. And a leg that might have belonged to a dinosaur that witnessed the asteroid strike. Oh, Snarge is definitely all over in here. Listen, the story is revealed in a new documentary that I am definitely going to watch called Dinosaur Apocalypse. And it features naturalist David Attenborough and paleontologist Robert De Palma. He first started working at the fossil site called Tanis in 2012. And Tannis is more than 2,000 miles away from the Chicxulub impact crater left by the asteroid that struck off the coast of Mexico. So we've got a lot of well-preserved fish fossils. As a massive body of water unleashed by the asteroid strike, 
moved up the interior seaway. Hmm. He is certain the fish died within an hour of the asteroid strike and not of the massive wildfires or the nuclear winter that came in the days and months that followed. Mm -hmm. And that's because impact spherules, small bits of molten rock thrown up from the center into space where they crystallize into a glass-like material, were found lodged in the gills of the fish. Wow. And analysis of these fish fossils reveals that the asteroid hit during springtime. <laughs> what? So, I know. What? One I piece mean, of evidence. <laughs> okay. I believe them. I think they can do amazing things with science. I'm just absolutely blown away that they have this information. Yeah. Like, <laughs> To be noted, a lot of the latest discoveries revealed in the documentary have not yet been published in scientific journals. So they hope to confirm this. They even found a fossilized pterosaur egg, which is the first found in North America. Hmm. The fossilized turtle with a wooden stick is evidence the creature was impaled during the water surge. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's evidence it's stacking up, but by studying this impact event in greater detail, we can be better prepared to care for our world right now. Yeah, we want to prevent other turtles from getting impaled when the asteroid starts coming for us, right? Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, if you need to be selfish and humanistic about it, maybe you get impaled. So maybe we learn about how not to get impaled by sticks, y'all. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Poisoned Legacy, Why the Future of Power Can't Be Nuclear, Explaining the Mechanics of a Bird's Nest, and An Alaskan Volcano is Overdue to Erupt, and We May Finally Know What's Stopping It. So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.